Welcome to Chomping Down the Dietetic Exam, where I, Dietitian Faraz, and you, an awesome person, join forces to chomp down dietetic concepts into digestible bites and provide you with practice questions, rationales, and tips to conquer your dietetic exam, and you will conquer it because you are smart, you are skilled, and you got this. Hit it! Thank you for tuning in. Hope you're doing well and staying safe. Before diving into the listener-requested topics for today's episode, which will consist of diverticulosis versus diverticulitis, Addison's disease, and sensitivity versus specificity, I got some really, really exciting news I gotta share with you. So over the years, I've had a lot of podcast listeners and students ask me to develop a program that covers everything you need to know about the RD exam. Well, guess what? That's happened. I've developed a program that's really focused on visual learning, and this program consists of 17 video lectures that cover all four domains and every topic that's relevant to the RD exam. These topics are covered with full explanations, tons of mnemonics, illustrations, animations, tables, and each video lecture also has a pre and post test and a super duper colorful set of corresponding notes. This full program is now available on our website at chompdowndietetics.com Make sure to check out the program sneak peek video on the website's homepage and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. That being said, let's get into it. A high fiber diet is contraindicated for which of the following disease states? A. Diverticulitis B. Diverticulosis C. Constipation D. Obesity So let's talk about diverticular disease. The walls of our large intestine is supposed to be smooth. Sometimes what happens is that the wall loses its integrity and herniates out, resulting in the formation of small pouch areas called diverticula. Diverticulosis is essentially the presence of these diverticula, which makes sense because osis refers to being affected by something or can also refer to an abnormal increase. In diverticulosis, there is an abnormal increase in these diverticula. So you can use the suffix osis to distinguish diverticulosis from diverticulitis, where the suffix itis refers to inflammation, which we will soon discuss. Now, there are different categories of diverticulosis, such as complicated and uncomplicated, but for our purposes, we'll focus on the idea that the majority of people will have asymptomatic diverticulosis. Diverticulosis is actually super common, to the point that almost all of us who reach 90 years old will develop diverticulosis, so we have that to look forward to. So the pathophysiology behind diverticulosis is debatable, but one of several other theories posits that low fiber intake can significantly contribute to diverticulosis since lack of fiber 
causes our stools to become dry and can lead to decreased colonic motility and constipation, which forces our colon to create higher pressures to move the stool through the colon properly. This high pressure can cause parts of the colonic wall to herniate out in the form of these pouches called diverticula. So since these pouches are exposed, they're more susceptible to becoming compromised if bacteria or residue accumulates on or around these diverticula, it can cause a diverticula to tear, get infected, or get inflamed. If that happens, then diverticulosis becomes diverticulitis. This condition can range in severity, but it is generally symptomatic. And Symptoms can include abdominal pain, cramps, nausea, vomiting, abscesses, fistulas, among others. Now, with specific regards to what we as dietitians recommend for both conditions, for diverticulosis, we generally recommend a high-fiber diet. And in diverticulitis, depending on the severity, we generally recommend clear liquids and a low-fiber diet with gradual progression to high fiber since if the diverticula are inflamed you don't want the colon exposed to a lot of fiber because it would add bulk to the stool and could cause even more inflammation but you do want to eventually return to high fiber because once a diverticulitis slash inflammation is gone you still have diverticulosis with that being said Let's get back to the question. A high fiber diet is contraindicated for which of the following disease states? A. Diverticulitis. B. Diverticulosis. C. Constipation. D. Obesity. So let's go in reverse here and actually start with D and C. High fiber would actually be beneficial in both obesity and constipation as opposed to being contraindicated. So we can safely eliminate both of these answer choices. What this question really comes down to is our knowledge of which diverticular condition warrants a high fiber diet, diverticulosis or diverticulitis. We've established that diverticulosis is essentially the presence of diverticula. So low fiber intake can significantly contribute to diverticulosis since lack of fiber causes our stools to become dry and can lead to decreased colonic motility and constipation, which forces our colon to create higher pressures to move the stool through the colon properly. Therefore, in diverticulosis, a high fiber diet would be indicated. So we can eliminate B as well. So with A, diverticulitis, you don't want the colon exposed to a lot of fiber because it would add bulk to the stool and could cause even more inflammation. So a high fiber diet is contraindicated in diverticulitis. Therefore, A is the correct answer. All right, with that being said, let's move on to our next appetizer question. Here we go. Which of the following is generally increased in Addison's disease? A, aldosterone, B, cortisol, C, androgens, D, potassium. 
So there are different categories of adrenal insufficiency, but we'll be discussing primary adrenal insufficiency, which is also known as Addison's disease. And the issue here is that the adrenal cortex is compromised. So there's decreased secretions of mineralocorticoids, namely aldosterone, from the zona glomerulosa section of the adrenal cortex. There's also decreased secretion of corticosteroids, namely cortisol, from the zona fasciculata area of the adrenal cortex, and there is also decreased secretion of androgens, which come from the zona reticularis section of the adrenal cortex. So a lot of deficiencies going on here. Let's start with aldosterone. One of the functions of aldosterone is that it's primarily responsible for sodium reabsorption. So in Addison's disease, however, aldosterone production is super limited. So the body's ability to reabsorb sodium is therefore decreased, resulting in the excessive excretion of sodium without reabsorbing it, leading to decreased levels of sodium in the body. Naturally, water will want to follow sodium, their best buddies, so aldosterone also allows for water retention. So decreased aldosterone levels means decreased water in the body, which could lead to dehydration. In addition, aldosterone is also responsible for potassium excretion. And in Addison's disease, however, aldosterone production is decreased, like we mentioned, so the body's ability to excrete potassium is therefore also decreased, resulting in the retention of potassium, leading to increased levels of potassium in the body. Moving on to cortisol, it's a major hormone, Hall of Fame hormone with a variety of functions, but one of the main functions of cortisol is to serve as a counter-regulatory hormone for hypoglycemia. In Addison's disease, however, cortisol production is decreased, so the body becomes more susceptible to hypoglycemia. In addition, one of the functions of androgens, such as testosterone, is related to muscle building, similar to aldosterone and cortisol. Androgen secretion is also decreased in Addison's disease, so with less androgens in the body, muscle wasting can take place. In addition, weight loss can also occur. So to summarize, in Addison's disease, aldosterone, cortisol, and androgens are all decreased. With regards to medical nutrition therapy recommendations, the decreased aldosterone warrants a high salt recommendation. And a lot of times in the clinical setting, you'll hear patients asking for more salt or saying that they're craving salt. So that makes total sense because the sodium reabsorption process is compromised due to the lack of aldosterone. It makes total sense why people with Addison's disease would want more sodium because they don't have enough sodium. So you definitely want to recommend increasing salt intake, particularly during exercise or warm weather when sodium excretion can be higher due to increased perspiration. In the same vein, you want to recommend adequate hydration as well. 
And you also want to recommend being careful of potassium intake also due to the body retaining more potassium due to the lack of aldosterone being circulated. Consistent or frequent feedings would be another recommendation due to the risk of hypoglycemia. And since there's potential of wasting due to low androgens, we typically suggest high protein as well. With that being said, let's go back to our question. Which of the following is generally increased in Addison's disease? A. Aldosterone B. Cortisol C. Androgens D. Potassium We know aldosterone, cortisol, androgens are all decreased in Addison's disease because of the compromise of the adrenal cortex. So all three of these answers can be eliminated because we know they're decreased in Addison's disease. That leaves us with potassium and we know that with aldosterone when it is not being pumped out in sufficient amount it decreases the body's ability to excrete potassium and therefore the retention of potassium is increased therefore it leads to increased potassium levels in the body. Thus, the correct answer to the question is D, potassium. So just want to mention, one way to link cortisol, aldosterone, androgens to Addison's disease is to think of the acronym CAA, which actually stands for Creative Artists Agency. And that's a really big agency, arguably the biggest agency that represents celebrities. And, you know, they have clients like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Shakira, really, really big names. They have a whole roster of huge celebrities. So you can think of it like at CAA, whenever they're about to sign a new celebrity, they're going to add them to their roster. So... CAA, cortisol, aldosterone, androgens, adding Addison. So there's a link to be made there. You can also associate salt with this by saying that, you know, if a celebrity doesn't get signed to this agency, then they get really salty. Basically, they don't like it. All right, let's move on to our next appetizer question. Here we go. Which of the following is known to correctly identify participants as not having a disease? A. Sensitivity B. Specificity C. Both A and B D. None of the above So the main things you want to know when it comes to the concept of sensitivity and specificity is that sensitivity measures the true positive rate whereas specificity measures the true negative rate and you can distinguish between the two by focusing on the t's in sensitivity they're lowercase t's which look almost like the mathematical positive sign right so sensitivity looks for the positive rate if you focus on the f in specificity you can say that it represents the word fake and when you usually say something is fake it's usually used in a negative way. So specificity looks for the true negative rate. Now it's one thing to say, oh yeah, positive and negative rate, got it. But what does that mean? Well, let's chomp it down and start with sensitivity. So 
when it comes to sensitivity, you're basically trying to correctly identify folks who have a disease. Sensitivity represents how likely a test is to identify the presence of a condition. It measures the ability of a test to detect the condition when a condition may be present. If a test has high sensitivity, it means that among people who are administered the test, a very large percentage of those people who will be identified as having an illness will in fact have that illness, aka a true positive. So basically, if a person has a disease, the test will most likely indicate that person does have the disease if the test has high sensitivity. In other words, if a person has a condition, the test will catch that. But also, if a test has high sensitivity, it means that a very small percentage of people who are identified as having an illness will in fact not have that illness. You can think of this as someone who's described as being very sensitive. Usually, that means that that person takes offense to basically everything, even if it's small stuff. That's not really offensive. So a highly sensitive test looking at lupus, for example, works similarly in that it'll for sure identify people who actually have lupus as having lupus. But because the test is so sensitive, it will also identify people as having lupus who don't actually have lupus because sensitivity makes the test hyper aware of any indication that points to having a condition. So again, sensitivity, it's all about identifying folks who have a disease. Specificity is the opposite. It's all about identifying folks who don't have a disease. Specificity represents how likely a test is to correctly identify the lack of a condition being present. It measures the ability of a test to correctly exclude the condition when the condition is absent. If a test has high specificity, it means that among people who are administered a test, a very large percentage of those people will be identified as being without an illness and will in fact not have that illness, aka a true negative. So basically, if a person is healthy, the test will most likely indicate that person is indeed healthy, free from conditions, if the test has high specificity. In other words, if a person is free from the disease being tested for, the test is going to catch that, but also if a test has high specificity, it means that a very small percentage of people who are identified as being healthy will in fact not be healthy. So a highly specific test looking at lupus again will for sure identify people who don't have lupus as indeed not having lupus, but because the test is so specific and it's not 100% specific, which we'll talk about soon. It will also identify people as not having lupus who actually do have lupus. So again, specificity is all about identifying folks who do not have a disease. Just for clarity's sake, let's use a real world example. Let's apply sensitivity and specificity to a smoke alarm. Now, if the sensitivity is high for the smoke alarm, it'll more often than not be triggered when there is a fire. However, because the alarm is so sensitive, other stuff can set it off too. If you're cooking food on the stove and it starts producing a lot of smoke, it could activate the smoke alarm. In the same vein, 
toast being left in the toaster for too long could set off the alarm as well. Or a candle that has been lit can set off the smoke alarm. And of course, when you're looking too hot, the smoke alarm is like, whoa, you're so hot, I can't take it. And the smoke alarm might go off. In all these instances, the smoke alarm went off, but there was no fire. Therefore, the smoke alarm was sensitive for fire, but it wasn't specific for fire. Because if it was specific for fire, it wouldn't go off due to cooking or for other reasons. And instead, it would remain silent unless there was a legit fire. So a test will realistically never be 100% sensitive or 100% specific because if a test is 100% sensitive, it'll label everyone as having a disease. And if a test is 100% specific, it'll label everyone as not having a disease, neither of which are very helpful. When designing a test, we have to decide whether it's going to be higher on sensitivity and lower on specificity or whether the test will be lower on sensitivity and higher on specificity. In other words, the higher the sensitivity, the lower the specificity, and vice versa. Ideally, you want a test to have good amount of sensitivity and specificity, with one being more favored than the other, depending on the type of test. For example, a test with higher sensitivity is usually administered in a screening scenario, since the test will identify most people as having a condition who actually do have that condition and a few of them actually not having that condition. And you want your screening to be sensitive and to catch everything, even if it means labeling a person as having a condition even though they may not have it. Although it's not ideal, but anyone suspected of having a disease from a screening would be subject to an additional test to confirm it, right? So that additional confirmatory test will be a diagnostic test and will have high specificity because it'll be trying to rule out everyone that doesn't actually have the disease. Because that second test will be so specific to that disease, it'll be very likely to rule out the people from the first test who were identified as having the disease. So even though it might cause those people anxiety, if they were told they tested positive for a disease in the screening, once they're subject to a diagnostic test, if they truly don't have the disease, the test will tell them that they don't have the disease and their anxiety should go away. With that being said, let's revisit our question. Which of the following is known to correctly identify participants as not having a disease? A. Sensitivity B. Specificity C, both A and B, D, none of the above. So let's go through all the answer choices here. A, sensitivity. So sensitivity is looking at the true positive rate. So it's trying to identify folks who have a disease correctly. It measures the ability of a test to detect the condition when a condition is present. Considering that, and looking at the key phrase here, which says in the question, as not having a disease, that clues us in that this isn't talking about sensitivity. Because if the question was talking about sensitivity, the question would instead read, which of the following is known to correctly identify participants as having a disease, as opposed to not having a disease, which is what's in the question. So we can eliminate 
A as an answer choice. How about B, specificity? Well, specificity does use verbiture like not having a disease because specificity is all about identifying the lack of a condition being present. It measures the ability of a test to correctly exclude the condition when the condition is absent. So this is a very good indicator that the answer to this question is specificity. But best practice dictates that we have to go through all the answer choices just to be sure. So let's move on to C, both A and B. We know that this can't be true because sensitivity and specificity are opposites. And the phrase that's being used in this question, which is as not having a disease, is forcing us to make a decision as to which component it's talking about, sensitivity or specificity. So it can't be C. We can eliminate that. And D, none of the above. Again, that phrase, identify participants as not having a disease. We know that that's referring to sensitivity or specificity. We just have to decide which one. And we can eliminate that answer choice. And we know for sure that it is referring to specificity. Thus, that is the correct answer, B. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. Remember to check us out on chompdowndietetics.com where we have our program that covers all relevant topics on the RD exam with video lectures and colorful notes. You can also hit us up on our socials, which are listed in the episode descriptions. And this is where you can request topics and just let us know how you're doing with your exam journeys. With that being said, I will catch you later. Bye-bye.